0: We're going to be in chapter 3 today. We'll see how far we get. We may even get 4 done. But I told you how that the book of Hebrews is basically um, probably the earliest book in your New Testament. And it's written um, by Paul. And it really uh, puts in perspective uh, God's dealing with the nation of Israel. And uh, it's a book that it's definitely not written directly to us. There's a lot of things in there that you'll see that inspirationally, and we'll see some of those today probably, that uh, are, are really good uh, practical things that you can apply, but you find them in sections um, or maybe verses. You can't find it across the board with the book because the book wasn't written to us across the board. It's written to, uh, to Hebrews. So you're going to find that the book has a particular uh, direction to the nation of Israel and what he's doing in the book, and this is really the key to it. Uh, What he's doing in the book is he's writing this comparing what the Old Testament was compared to what Christ has now established with his coming into the New Testament. (laughs) You can see the value of that for a a Jew who is alive at this particular point in time and Paul making an incredible argument showing them uh, Christ is superior to everything in the Old Testament. So we saw in the first two chapters where Christ is superior to the angels and he goes through in great detail and we, we saw all of that. Once we start chapter three, From chapter 3 up to chapter 10, um, the overall theme is going to be, uh, you know, Christ priesthood is better than the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. But that's the overall thing you want to remember. And you want to put that note at the beginning of chapter 3 and then mark it up to chapter 10. But that's the overall concept that he's trying to get across. But what he does in individual chapters in accomplishing that is that he compares Christ with everything within that aspect of the priesthood. And in chapter 3, he's dealing with Christ compared uh, to Moses. And that's a, uh, that's a key aspect of being able to understand uh, the difference because Moses was such a was such a, a great leader, and so he starts out in chapter three, uh, and he says, "Wherefore, holy brethren?" And we know that the word where, "wherefore" uh, uh, as "therefore" will always be a continuation of what we just saw. He says, "Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider uh, the apostle and high priest of our profession." Uh, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in all his house, now the key word that 's going to start popping up here that you want to want to mark in your Bible if you have one of those yellow china markers is the word house and whenever you find uh, the word house, you want to look at it very carefully uh, because in ninety nine percent of the places you find it it 's going to be dealing with the whole house of Israel. And so you want to, that's always a key word that you want to look for. And he says, uh, faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses inasmuch as he who hath builded the house uh, hath more honor than the house. And of course, again, Moses building the house of Israel and that's the house he's talking about. For every house is builded by some man but he that built all things is God. And now, uh, clearly, we're moving toward a direction that Moses was great, but Christ is going to be greater because God is behind every great thing that every man does for him. Um, And so he says in verse 5, and Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after And then it says, but Christ as a son over his own house. And then, of course, that's a reference to the nation of Israel, too. So it's a thing where... um, So it's a a reference here to to Christ being, like it says in John, he came unto his own and his own received him not. That's the nation of Israel. Uh, And it says, and this is another key here that shows you who he's writing this to. Look at verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house whose house are we. And of course that's the nation of Israel. And then in verse six you have one of these verses that throws everybody uh, it's one of those one of these verses in Hebrews that throws everybody off and it just this is where they get off it says it says But Christ as is as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And That's a verse that's impossible to put into anything in Christianity, uh, just impossible. There's no way that you can fit that into Christianity in any way, shape, or form. So uh, there's only one place that can go, and that will be to the nation of Israel. And notice the key words here. Uh, He says, first of all, it's verse 6, it's conditional. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If it's conditional, it's based on what somebody's got to do, if we hold fast the confidence of the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end, and the key word there um, is the word unto the end, which we know from Matthew chapter 25 and Matthew chapter 24, he that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved, dealing with the nation of Israel. So he's basically, this is showing us as a tribulation context here that the Jew is God's house if he holds fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope. Uh, And he has to hold that unto the end. In other words, he has to endure unto the end of the tribulation period. Then he says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice. And that's Psalms 95 uh, that he's he's talking about there. And again, um, today, and that day is in the tribulation period, Uh, that they will hear his word. Harden not your heart, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day uh, of temptation in the wilderness. Now that'll be a reference to Deuteronomy chapter one. And here again, nobody in his right mind can put this into the church age in any way, shape, or form here. Because uh, the temptation here uh, is in the day of provocation, is when they sent the spies over and uh, they came back, and then Israel uh, was afraid. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, and, I'll, and, I'll, and this is the reference to that that you'd want to put in there. Um, It says in chapter one, verse one, it says, uh, these be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side of Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazaroth uh, and uh, Dizahab. There are 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Sinai unto Kadesh uh, Barrena. Now Kadesh Barrena is where they were right before the spies go over and and it says there's 11 days journey from <coughs> Horeb where they started out <coughs> to get to the promised land. 11 days that's all the time it took for them to get there. And then it says verse 3 and it came to pass in the 40th year. And of course <coughs> What a great sermon that is, 40 years for an 11-day journey. And that's exactly what Israel did. That's the day of provocation. That's the day they provoked the Lord. by When the spies went over, they came back. And when they came back, they spread fear through the nation of Israel because of the giants and everything that they saw and the fortifications that uh, had been built there to keep them out. So what God does at that point in time, he He sends them back into the wilderness and they wander for forty years till everybody that's part of the generation that came out of out of Egypt dies off and This is why you have this in the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter one because uh the book Deuteronomy, Deutero means second or second giving, and in Deuteronomy he gives the that generation that's going over. The law again, a second time, and the reason for that, when you get into and read it, is because that the generation that perished never carried that uh, what God gave them to that next generation. So He has to start all over again, basically doing that. And so you can begin to see here, uh, verse eight: "Harden not your hearts, uh, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness." When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, and uh, it's a it's a this is clearly dealing with the nation of Israel. How anybody in their right mind could make this into the church uh, is just you know beyond defies logic in any way, shape, or form. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said they do always err. In their heart, and they have not known my ways. And that's because they chose not to. The parallels between the nation of Israel that you can make and us today is that we are much like the nation of Israel. God provided everything for them, but I want you to notice that the problem wasn't the fact that God had not provided for them, the problem is the hardness of their hearts. And we find that today in in dealing in the New Testament with, with people all the time. And it's the fact that people will harden their hearts to the things of God. And when that happens, then they go through their own tribulation period, much like the nation of Israel has to go through. Uh, you know, there did not have to be a tribulation period for the nation of Israel. And I say that telling anybody you know, that you deal with, that there doesn't have to be the tribulations that people go through in their life. They choose to do that because, just as Israel did because of the hardness of their heart. And they refuse to let God do uh, what God wants to do in their life. And verse 10 says, because of the hardness of their heart, they didn't learn the ways of God. That's a pretty telling testimony about the generation that comes out of Egypt. And I always looked at it, it as uh, it was probably easier for the generation that survived and went into the promised land than it was for the, um, for the generation that, um, that came out of Egypt. And the reason for that, from a practical sense, is it's easier for many of you who get saved and then just, you don't know anything else. You come to this church, you come to a Thursday night Bible study or whatever, or, or, and you get saved, and you basically never look back. You just embrace everything that God has, and you, you move on with it. And you weren't a bad person. You didn't get into a lot of things that the world had. I mean, you were lost, and you were part of the world. But you never got into drugs. You never got into alcohol. You never really hung out with the wrong crowd and all of that stuff. You just were a good lost person. And when you got saved, then, you know, you just moved on from there. You take that in comparison. That would be like the new generation going in. You take that in comparison to the person who... Um, you know is into the world. They they were part of everything the world had. They ran with the wrong crowd. They drank. They 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 did everything the world does. It's harder for them, it's harder for them than it is somebody that never got into all that. You take two given unsaved people, they're typified by the two generations. The one generation that come out of Egypt, which is the type of the world could not trust God and failed in almost everything that they did. You know why? Because they always compared where they were at to what they had in Egypt. And you see it all the time when, they're, when every, time they're, every time they're in a tough place, instead of looking for what God did the last time and he's going to do this next time, they just go back to what they were in Egypt. And they're always comparing. Well, back in Egypt, we had this and we had all that stuff. They never take in consideration that how many of their fathers and their grandfathers and, their, and for 430 years, how many of their family members were killed by the slavery of Egypt. And so they don't look at that. And all they see is where they're at now and they always go back and think about what they had in the world. And that can be a problem for a lot of people uh, that and we we deal with it all the time in, in dealing with people that are trying to make the distance. This church here is filled with young men and young ladies who when you came in, you were just your garden variety lost person, you know, and when you got saved, you didn't you didn't have a lot of ties to the world. You weren't into alcohol. You weren't into drugs. You didn't run with the wrong crowd. Your flesh hadn't been exposed to that to that level. So it's easier for you not to look back, find what you have, and then just move on with it from there. That's the new generation that went over. Now, obviously, you know it's a it's a great comparison uh, to a point, but I find that in dealing with people, and I've seen this all my ministry, the ones who the ones who uh, there's an old saying that that Bob Jones Senior used to say, and it's so true. It, it used to say that. Sin never leaves a man any better than it finds him. And that is so true. And, you know, when you're young and you get with the wrong crowd and you get out into the world and you get part of that, you you sell your flesh to that to a certain degree. And sometimes, no matter what happens, you 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 fall back into that and you and you struggle with it. And many times it'll keep I've seen people who just cannot break out of it. And it doesn't matter how low they get. You would think when you go down to the City Union Mission, and when I started going to the City Union Mission in 1977, which is a long time ago, before most of you were born, the average age down there was, you know, 60, 70 years old. And I remember when we was to go to camp down at the Warsaw camp, they have a, a dry-out facility down there, and every guy in that place... And this was back in the 80s, too. Every guy in that place was in his 60s, 70s, uh, you know, or older than that. If you, when you go down to the mission now, uh, you see that the average age is probably 20, 25. And it's a thing where, uh, you know, it, it, these guys are get caught into it now. And it doesn't matter. They hear, poor, <laughs> they hear more preaching down at the mission than you guys hear in a month in a week's time. They have chapel three times a day. Are you kidding me? And you have to go to it to be get, eat and have a bed or whatever they do for you down there. And on top of that, they have a program that they put these guys in. So they get it 24-7, three or four times a day. And you know what? Most of them won't make it. You know why they won't make it? Because they've tainted their flesh to the world. doesn't mean that they couldn't make it. It just means that you can get yourself so into the world that you can't break from it. And now you would think that they would. They're living on the street. They got no money. They got no food. They're dependent on a government service to to give them everything. They absolutely have nothing. No car, no home, no nothing. You would think that somebody would get so low in their life that they would say, I'm tired of this life. I want to move on to the next section and get something better. But they don't. And that's the Jew. That's that first generation. Every time they had a problem, instead of looking to God, they look back at the world, and that's that will defeat you every time, and that's exactly what Israel's problem was with that generation. It came out. I, I don't care where you go. Every time they are faced, every time they are faced with an issue, they uh, they they just run back to the world, and they just can't break that barrier. Uh, that just, you know, will, will make their life better. So in the generation that, that didn't wasn't exposed to that, they do a lot better, and they get to the go over. And it's a picture in our world, if you want to make a practical application to, here again, a section, not the whole book. We see the parallels between the nation of Israel and Christianity today is the same way. Uh, you look at you guys and you gals that just, you know, the world never, I mean, you were in the world, but it never got its claws into you. You weren't addicted to the things of the world. You you you, you had unsaved friends, but you were smart enough that you just never fell into that. And, you know, it's a lot easier for you than it is somebody else that, uh, you know, that that uh, got, got into it. Now, that is certainly not an excuse because... You know, God will, my my point is this, it's not on me or the person working with you or any church to to change you. We have the ability to give you the things to change you, but you have to decide you're going to change yourself. And the first generation can never do that. Every time they're out there and there's no water, they look back to the world. They're out there and there's no food. They look back to the world. Every time something went south in their life, they look back to the world. And as long as you keep looking back to the world and you don't make an absolutely complete break with the world, the friends, everything, and embrace the new generation, you ain't going anywhere. And it won't matter how bad you get. It won't matter if you do wind up at the City Union Mission. That's where you'll be, and it'll be there because of your own choosing. So it's an incredible picture. That, uh, that you see evolving through here. And I've told you many, 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 many times, many, many, many times, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the parallels between the nation of Israel and the things of God. And it's just one of those things that you can't, or the, 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 the Christianity, and it's one of those things where you just can't, uh, you can learn so much from it. So he says that this first generation, they wandered for 40 years, and he did that to every one of them died because they couldn't go over. And uh, and he says in verse 10, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart. Now there's another one. There's where it all starts. There's the fundamental problem. He told you up here uh, in verse 8 that their, their heart was a hardened heart. He tells you here in verse 10 That, uh, you know, in their heart, they chose not to know. You know, and you ask yourself, how in the world could that happen? I mean, they had Moses. They had Aaron. I mean... They had the Mount Sinai experience. They had the Red Sea experience. They had the, they had, they had the Golden Calf experience. They had, they, they had the cloud by day or the fire by night and the cloud by day. They had the manna from heaven coming down. They had the quail coming down. They had the water out of the rock. How much more could God have done? And yet they chose not to know his ways. That is the greatest commentary on on man that you're going to find anywhere in the Bible. And then he says, verse 11, So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Now the rest there that he's talking about is the millennial rest for the nation of Israel. And we're going to see how, and we get into chapter 4, we're going to see how that he, he breaks that rest down from the Old Testament right up into the millennium. But that's what he's saying. He's saying that Israel never got that rest uh, because of the heart. And at the same time, uh, if you want to, we're staying with the practical here because, you know, you're all working with people, most of you anyhow, to some degree, and that's why there'll be no rest in a person's life who doesn't, who doesn't uh, put, them, put themselves into uh, the word of God and be everything that God wants them to be. Uh, They're the first generation Christians compared to the nation of Israel, that first generation that came out. And they never found the rest. They never did. And God's people or anybody who doesn't find Christ and then after they find Christ, find the principles of the word of God to change who they are, it'll just be a revolving door. And most of Christianity for Christians is a revolving door. It's they're in for three months and they're out for a year. Then they're in for two months and they're out for another six. They just keep going back to the world and there'll never be any rest in that. And that's what he's telling the nation of Israel. God had an incredible rest for them. He had a place where all of their problems were going to be solved. All their enemies were going to be dealt with. They had all the food they could want. They had every blessing that God had they could have. And if they could rest in that, but the only way they could get that is to rest in the Word of God and the promises and obey them. Voila, same way for us. The rest for the believer today will be found in the promises and the principles of the Word of God within the structure of God's church. And when you don't follow that, then your life's going to be hell on earth. Buckle your seatbelt. The elevator's going down. And uh, that is Israel's problem. And when you start to, and again, you start to see things in chapter 3, and you'll see them all through the book. And I told you, the book isn't directly written to you, but if you notice what I'm doing, I'm putting it directly to the nation of Israel, but then I'm applying it spiritually to us. And there's some things in the book you can do that to. And so, the parallels between Israel and Christianity are so up against each other; it's really hard to uh, hard to uh, to not see it. And so then he says in verse twelve, "Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you uh, in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God." Uh, there is no greater verse for the Israel, and there's no greater verse for Christianity today or anybody today than that verse right there. And that's exactly what the problem is. You get a heart, an evil heart of unbelieving, and then you depart from the living God and everything that he has for you. And it's, it's just that simple. You know, we like to make life really complicated. Life is probably the simplest thing that you're ever going to examine on this, in this world because it just depended on what you're going to do with what God gave you. And the great model and example of that is the nation of Israel. And when they did what was right with God, they had everything that they could ever want. When they didn't do what was right and they had an evil heart and they hardened their heart and, uh, you know, they parted from the living God, uh, then they had all the problems that they had. And it is no different for you and for me. That's where disaster comes into uh, our lives. Verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest of any of you be hardened, through the deceitfulness of sin. Boy, that's a great word, the deceitfulness of sin. We think that sin, uh, that's, how we, that's how we spell fun, S-I-N. And yet he's telling you there that in sin is you get deceived. You get, you get deceived. And uh, it's a thing where what you think is, and the world projects that. That's why, when you see the beer commercials on TV, it's always a bunch of young people out there having fun and doing everything. That's why, you know, when you see all of the things that it's, the world wants you to fall into, it's always portrayed with people that are your age. And everybody's happy. Everybody's having a good time. Everybody's having fun. They're out there doing their thing, you know. And uh, it's, it's, it's a deceiving thing because every one of them, every one of them, ultimately, if they don't find Christ, every one of them is going to wind up in a lake of fire. And long before that happens, every one of them are going to destroy every aspect of their life and wind up being a mess. And, uh, you know, and it's just the way that it works. Uh, one of the seven laws in the Bible is the law of sowing and reaping. You know, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Galatians 6, 7, what for a man soweth, that way also reap. And uh, when you reap something, you know, it, it, in that sense, you know, it's, it's always, you always reap more than you sow. It's just the way that it works. And, uh, you know, people like to blame their problems on everybody else. And a lot of people fall into that. A lot of people, you know, you find people who can put people on a guilt trip. And the people uh, are too weak to really to, 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 to see past that. So they, they, they just fall into that thing and people get manipulated and used by that. And it's a thing where, you know, you, you just... You, you you want to exhort one another. You want to help one another. But you've got to know that sin in your life or my life or anybody's life, you know, is going to be deceitful. And it's going to bring about a lifestyle that, uh, that you think is a good, but it's going to be very bad at the end. And it's just that. Then he says in verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ. Here it is again. And the... You know, I would suggest you mark these in red to kind of stand out. Uh, There was one up there in verse 6. Here's another one. For we are made partakers of Christ if, see, it's conditional. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast, and here he says it again, unto the end. Now, the beginning of the confidence there will be uh, what they had in the Old Testament when God had Moses and gave them what uh, they had. That was the beginning of it. And then they departed from that because of their attitude of heart and that they were, you know, they were against God. And notice again, the last part of that verse, and you certainly want to mark this, steadfast unto the end. And that's the end of the tribulation. So even though there's a lot of practical parallels, the direct application will be to the nation of Israel. uh, And that's why it's all conditional with them. It's not conditional with you. Once you trust Christ as your own personal Savior, there's no real ifs involved to it. You're either going to walk with God and he's going to bless you or you're not going to walk with God and he's going to clobber you. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. But for the nation of Israel, it's all conditional. And it's conditional what they're going to do with what God gave them. Uh, and, you know, that's what you've you got to see the difference between the two. Uh, and again, verse 15, while it is said, uh, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. And for some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all came out of Egypt by Moses. And of course, uh, but uh, with with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And what he's saying here, that... that uh, when they come out of Egypt, their their heart was continually the problem of hardening it against God. And they just had one issue after the other. And, you know, I've, we've already covered it, but it's, it's just what they did. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, uh, but to them that believe not. And then, of course, um, the doctrinal aspect, as I said, the rest is the millennial reign of Christ. Historically, it's Canaan's land when they went over. God intended for them to go over into Canaan's land. You see this in Joshua chapter 1. He gives them the three prerequisites for them to have the rest. And turn back to Joshua chapter 1, and I'll I'll show them to you because they're the same three things that if uh, if we are going to have rest. And where they had rest in the promised land, you and I have rest uh, in the Christian life, but it's through the same thing. And in Joshua chapter 1, here's where he gives them the three conditions for their rest. And of course, the first one is found in verse 6. And you've heard me preach this before. It's a great a great little, um, you know, um, devotion if you want to do it. In in verse 6, it says, be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto the fathers. And And the first thing that they have to do is to believe what God said. God gave them some promises and principles that they have to believe. And but it again, he keeps using the word courage because it takes courage to believe what God said, and that was their first problem. That we saw that back there in Hebrews, that was the first issue they had. They just couldn't believe it because they're always comparing it with the world. And I say again until any man, any woman cuts the ties with the world completely, you're not going anywhere. And it's a waste of your time, my time, the Lord's time, because the first generation failed simply because they just kept looking back at Egypt. And every time something came up, it was too easy to run back. See, you've got to cut off your escape route. When you cut off your escape route of going back to the world, then you're forced to deal with it with the biblical principles because you've got no place else to go. That's a great position to be in. So the first thing he tells them is they have to have courage to obey the Word of God. Uh, uh, excuse me, believe the Word of God. The second one is in verse 7. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand, nor to the left, and whatsoever uh, thou, uh, uh, th- thou mayest prosper, wherever so thou goest. The second thing is courage to obey the Word of God. It takes courage to believe it, but brother, it takes courage to obey it. And that's what they couldn't do because they never cut off the escape route. They always looked at going back to Egypt, the world. And until and, and you cut those ties, you're not going anywhere. And for some people, like the second generation, it was easier to cut the ties because they never, never was really in Egypt. They were born after they left Egypt. But boy, the people that came out of Egypt, they had a tough time. And so will a lot of God's people that are really connected uh, into the world system. And then the third thing is verse 9. And that is, Have I not commanded thee, be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou smain, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Once you do the first two, then the third one is the is the rest that he's talking about. Once you have the courage to to believe what he said, once you have the courage to obey what he said, there lies your ability to rest in what he said. And so this is what you find back here in in uh, in, in the book of Hebrews. He keeps taking it back to that wandering of those forty years and those two generations that just couldn't couldn't come out of it. And uh, you know. And for some they had heard did provoke, how be it not all came out of Egypt by Moses. Not everybody, fo- not everybody followed Moses out. Some came out because they just wanted to get out. And they had, and those were the mixed multitude that you find in places like Numbers chapter 4, Numbers chapter 11. They, they were the group that came out, but they really didn't come out to follow the Lord nor Moses. They came out because they just wanted to get out of Egypt. And they were always a source of problem. And in the churches today, that'll all, again, any congregation, we call the nation of Israel the congregation of Israel, okay? That word congregation means a gathering together. We call the church today a congregation because people come together. They congregate together, congregation. But the problem today in churches will be the same problem that they had with Israel will be the mixed multitude. That's people who have one foot in the world and one foot in church, and they play both ends against the middle. A good pastor, a smart pastor, will do his best to keep that number as low as he can uh, in his church. You never build a church with mixed multitude people. In fact, you don't get anything done with mixed multitude people. And people who have one foot in the world and one foot in the Bible are people that you really don't, you you wanna keep that number to a minimum. And obviously the way you do that is through hard preaching and uh, and just dealing with issues. And it's a thing where, you know, you, you, you weed them out because, you know, they're coming for the wrong reason and whatever reason they are coming for isn't worth the abuse they have to take of getting clobbered every week with the Word of God. So pretty soon they'll find another church they'll never go to. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just the way it works. And that's why, uh, you know, uh, some of the people that came out, they didn't come out with Moses. They weren't following the Lord. They came out because they just wanted to get out. And, uh, you know, you see that. At verse 17, but with whom uh, was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? Basically, he's saying that he was up with all of them. And the reason why he did that is because the mixed multitude infected the whole congregation. Uh, I don't know that it went this way. I think it's a great illustration; uh, gives you a great visual. I, I, you know, the movie is. I like the movie, but obviously it's not accurate in everything. But when you go back to the old 1955 movie of the Ten Commandments, where Charlton Heston played Moses, um, that's before he ran around naked in the Planet of the Apes. But anyway, uh, it's a thing where, to me, that is that it gives you it gives you a And I know, I know it's a movie, and I know that, you know, uh, but it's based on the facts, and there's a a lot of things in it that they had to add to make it a movie. I get that. And I don't, I don't, but you had Nathan, Nathan, who came out with them, and, and in the movie, Nathan was the guy who was always leading the mixed multitude. And he always, he's the guy that when Moses was up there, he, he decided that Moses was dead. And he's a great picture of, of probably what happened, if not by a Nathan there, certainly by somebody or a group of the mixed multitude. Because he's always pulling the people aside. He's always, he made the golden calf. He did this, he did that. He, he's at the, at the Red Sea when it's divided you know, and they start, they're standing there before it's divided, and here comes Pharaoh's army. He's the one who is saying, Moses led us to our death. Here we are. He's sowing doubt in the people. When the sea opens up and they go across, and then they're standing on the other side, and they look back, and now Pharaoh's army is coming through the same dry land that they just came through. It was Nathan again who said, see here, Moses, let, let's go back to Egypt. And then, of course, the water comes in and drowns them all out. And I don't know if that's exactly the way it happened, but that's the way it happened. I don't know if there was a Nathan back then that did that, but I am telling you, that's exactly what the mixed multitude did. And that is a great illustration to show you what Israel's, Israel's problem was. And uh, that is a great illustration to show you in what churches today Uh, is the problem, and pastors uh, either don't know how to deal with it, they don't want to deal with it, or they're too stupid to even see they got the problem. Many times, oh, does this become a problem? Many times those mixed multitude work their way into leadership in those churches. And that's when you really got some issues. And so, you know, it's a thing where, uh, you know, it was true. There's so many things back there that happened, even though it's not directly to us, There's so much there that is absolutely for us that you can just really, really, really make the spiritual applications to. And it says in verse 17, with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? That's that whole first generation. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believe not, So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And he leaves you with this thought in chapter 3. And it's a great thought. It was the fact that they couldn't believe what God said. And why couldn't they believe what God said? Because the world had too much of a hold on them. And I'm telling you right now, unless you break with the world, if you don't let it go, If that means you have to let all your friends go, you have to meet them, call them up, and say, I can't be with you anymore. My life's a mess. i got to make a new deal. If you're not willing to do that and make the break from the first generation and try to get into that second generation, you'll never have the rest. It'll never be there. And then we're going to move into chapter 4 here. And in chapter 4, where in chapter 3, he compared Christ to Moses. Now... In chapter four, he's going to uh, he's going to show us that the promises of Christ are better than the promises that we had in the Old Testament. And of course, uh, again, there's going to be a lot of good parallels here. But I keep in mind now that uh, um, this is this is this is where we're at. Chapter four. Uh, really defines uh, is the definitive chapter on the book because it's the, the key here is, is, without a doubt, is the nation of Israel. And it's all about the promises that, uh, that they never got. And, of course, those promises were the promises that God gave to Abraham that uh, never got fulfilled. So he says in verse 1, Let us therefore fear lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, there's another verse that clearly shows you that this can't be to the church because for you and me in the New Testament church, all the promises of God are in Christ. So when you get in Christ, you get all of those promises. That's Ephesians chapter 1. But that's not true of the nation of Israel. The promises given to Israel were conditional. The promises given to you are unconditional. Now, you may not get those promises, but it won't be because God didn't make them available to you. It's because you refused them. But in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel, God would not make those promises available to them because they didn't do what was right. So he'd just pull them back and take them away, which he did. So he says, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise... Uh, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. And of course, again, he's talking to the Jews, the nation of Israel, and they have come short of the promises. When you go back to uh, Matthew chapter 12 and chapter 13, you find what is commonly called by the charismatic movement as the unpardonable sin. And of course, we know that there is no unpardonable sin, but what we're having in Matthew 12 and 13 is their official rejection of Christ and his ministry. And he tells them, here's the conditional. He tells them that as long as, 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 as you take the position that the spirit by which Christ does these miracles is the spirit of the devil, which is what they were saying, then you can't ever be saved as a nation. And that's the condition. And that's exactly what the, the hardness of their heart was back in the Old Testament and the hardness of their heart was there when Christ showed up at the first coming of Christ. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed w- uh, with faith in them that heard it. Now here's a case where they, you see the word gospel and it, for unto us was the gospel preached uh, as well as unto them. So, the moment the Baptist preacher sees the word gospel, he's just got to put this into the church age because what else could it be? And he's so blatantly stupid of the Bible that he doesn't know that there's four or five different gospels in the Bible. And the gospel word means good news. So, here, if you don't have this in here, here's what he's saying For under us was the gospel preached. That's not the church. That's Paul and the apostles and the gospel that was preached is found in Matthew chapter 10, which was the gospel of the kingdom that they're preaching at the first coming of Christ. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. well as unto them were the Old Testament people who got the news, the good news of the gospel that God gave to Abraham that he was going to make their seed like the stars of heaven. That was pretty good news. That's a gospel. So you see here that when you find the word gospel, you immediately fall apart because you don't know anything about your Bible. And because you find the word gospel, it has to be the church age. Not true. And when you go through the Bible, you'll find that there's the gospel that was preached to Abraham. You'll find that that would be Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15. There's the gospel that was preached in the, in the, in, in, of the kingdom. There's an everlasting gospel in the revelation and the tribulation. And there is a gospel of the grace of God that, that Paul gave us that we preach today. So every time you find the word gospel because somebody is so stupid when it comes to the Bible, they just think that it has to be, this has to fit into the church. And of course, you know, it, it's, it's just not the way it works. The context here is Israel's rest that they didn't get because they rejected the good news, the gospel, the good news that Christ preached of the gospel of the kingdom in Matthew 10, and the good news that was preached unto Abraham back in Genesis when he showed him the stars of heaven. That's the gospel. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as of I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And what he's saying there, that that you can enter into the rest today uh, in, in this time here of a Jew, but it's going to be in Christ because now we're in the church age. And Paul was a Jew, but when he got saved, he entered into that rest. So there's a difference between when the church age starts. When the church age starts, God's done with the nation of Israel in the after Acts seven, in the sense of restoring the kingdom to them. Now they have to get in Christ and be part of the church, and that's where they're going to find the rest. And what he's showing you here, as I said, is the promises of Christ for his rest is better than the rest for the Old Testament, because the promises of the rest for the Old Testament were conditional. The promise for God's rest for you and for me are unconditional. For he spake in a certain place on the seventh day, this wise. God, I'm going to read the section, then we're going to come back. I'm going to break it down for you. So just bear with me. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day of this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, they shall enter into my rest." Seeing, therefore, it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached enter not because of unbelief again, he limited a certain day, saying, David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear this his voice, harden not your hearts, verse eight, for if Jesus had given them rest, then would not have uh, then he not afterwards have spoken of." another rest. Verse 9, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Now, this is a breakdown from verse 4 to verse 9 of everything in your Bible. And notice it says in a certain place. And then 5, a place again. In, uh, and uh, 7, again, he limited a certain day. So he, he, he's given you, and let me break it down for you. It'd be simple to do that way. Verses verses four and five are dealing with the seven days creation. And that's where he creates everything in seven days and then rests on the seventh. And he sanctifies that seventh day, sets it apart. And that's a picture of man going to be on this earth for 6,000 years and then the millennium is going to be God's rest. That's the first thing. Then he said in verse 6, seeing therefore, and this will be 6 and 7, seeing therefore remaineth that some must enter therein as they to whom it was first preached enter not in by unbelief. And verse 6 will be Moses up to first and first Samuel. Verse 7, again he limeth a certain day, saying in David, this will be under David up to the end of the uh, the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. Verse 8, for if Jesus, that'll be the first coming of Christ. Verse 9, there remaineth the rest, that'll be the millennium. So he breaks it down by the verses showing you where everybody had a chance to get the rest. In 4, uh, he shows you that in the beginning, before the law, they had a chance to get it, if they understood it, and, and then in verse uh, 5 and 6, Moses to first Samuel, in verse 7, uh, David to Christ, and they rejected that, and then in verse uh, 8, Christ, uh, and they reject him. And so again, it skips right over the church age, no mention of it. And in verse 9, you have the millennial rest that God is going to bring them after they go through the tribulation period. Now, you want to get that in your Bible, get that breakdown, because that's, you know, that's, that's a major part of understanding how this thing is laying itself out. Verse 10, For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his... Now, that's one of the greatest places in the Bible that shows you that, uh, and, you know, you got to be careful saying this um, to people who don't have some degree of the Bible. Uh, Baptists today are scared to death of everybody, like the, the g- cult groups out there that believe that you salvation is of works, uh, to such a degree that they throw out dispensationalism and they, they don't see how a guy was saved in the Old Testament versus how he's saved in the New Testament or even how he's saved in the tribulation period. And they try to make, because they're so afraid of the word works connected with our salvation, they get so caught up with that that they just got to erase the word works out of everything in the Bible and the only way they can handle it because of their inability with the Bible, is to make everybody saved the way we are down through the Scriptures, from the Old Testament all the way through the Tribulation. So that's why most of the movies you see, most of the books you see, uh, after the rapture, people in the Tribulation, they're getting down on their knees and asking Christ to save them, just like like, um, we do in the church age, you know. (sighs) Nothing could be farther from the truth. My point is this. When you get the Bible perspective on it from this verse here, it says, it clearly says... that that he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Now, salvation has always been by works. There's just no question about it. In the Old Testament, they had to follow. Grace and faith was always in operation, no question about it. But it's what you can't get saved without grace, and the faith was based on what God told them to believe. Noah got saved because he built a boat, not because he got on his knees and trusted Christ as his own personal Savior. If he wouldn't have built a boat, he'd have drowned it just like everybody else. That was his works. Abraham believed God about not death, burial, and the resurrection of the Son and trusted Christ. He believed that someday his seed was going to fill the universe, and he believed that, and God counted that to him the righteousness. You see, all through the, in the New Testament, or in the tribulation period, they have to, you know, faith in Jesus Christ and and keep the Ten Commandments. But for you and for me, salvation is of works. It's just not the works that you did. He told you right there that Christ's work on the cross is how you got saved. Everybody else before the cross and in the tribulation, they had to do faith, grace, plus whatever God told them to do as a work. You and I in the church age, we get grace and faith plus his work. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but atoning his mercy has saved us. It's Christ's work in the church age that we get saved by. But salvation is always of works. And it's a thing where because they're so afraid of the word work, and they don't understand the bible in any small measure. They they shy away from that because they don't know what to do with it. And consequently they get themselves in a bigger mess than they do if they would have just followed what the bible says. If you're saved here tonight, you didn't get saved by your own works, but if you're truly saved today, you got saved by Christ's work. And uh, on the cross before he died, what did he say? It is finished. What was finished? The work. The work, And when he comes out of that tomb, he has the keys of death and hell, and <clears throat> we're on our way. From that point on, as we saw in Hebrews chapter 2, the devil's defeated, and off we go, and never looking back, and it's a thing where uh, it makes all the difference in the world. So, you know, that's one of the greatest verses that says God did a work, and he ceased from that work. And then he begins a new work. After we're saved by trusting in his works, then in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, which we're preaching every Sunday on, then he begins a good work in you. And that work is to finish the work that he started. And, you know, it just works that way. And verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest by any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And the examples we saw were all through chapter 3 um, and everything we said, And then... Uh, verse twelve in fact verse twelve and um thirteen is probably one of the greatest places in the Bible that shows you uh, the seven things that the word of God does for you and uh you know it's uh it here again he's directly giving it to the nation of Israel, but boy i'll tell you what the in the, in the practical application here for you and for me is overwhelming. For he says, verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him which we have to do." Now, this is two of the greatest verses in the Bible, and it shows you seven things that the Word of God does for us. And the first thing the Bible says, of uh, the Word of God is quick. And quicken in the Bible will always be a reference to salvation. And uh, you hath he quickened. You find that in the book of Ephesians and other places. So when you find the word quick or quickened, it's always going to be a reference to the day you got saved because quickened means that he saved you. So, and you want to look at the order that these things are in here. The second thing uh, he says, for the word of God is quick and powerful and That'll be your ministry. That'll be after you get saved, God has a work for you. And that power that he gives you uh, is the power that you're going to do that ministry with. Now, this brings in, you know, and here again, you could go through these and make a four-hour study out of it or teaching out of it if you wanted to. That when when it says quick and powerful, when you first get quickened, you don't, you have that power, but you don't know how to use that power. So now we know that there's a process that you go through. The moment you get saved, you have every bit and all of the Holy Spirit of God that you're ever going to have. That's not the problem. The problem is the Holy Spirit of God does not yet have all of you. I mean, he's got you as far as indwelling, but now you've got to go through the process of learning how to daily fill yourself with the Holy Spirit of God to be used of God. And as you go through the growth process, discipleship, coming to church, somebody working one-on-one with you, leaving Egypt, putting all of those things away and beginning to move forward, God will give you the power then to do the ministry that he's called you to do. And it all comes through the Word of God. All of this comes through the Word of God. And then... He says, uh, sharper. And we think of the word sharper because he's getting ready to say a two-edged sword. But we look at, the, we look at it as the fact that uh, something that has the a real sharp sword, uh, we use that term in the world like the cutting edge of this technology or the cutting edge or this guy is on a cutting edge. In other words, we use it as somebody who's, very sharp, very intelligent, very quick. And, you know, it's a thing where the example for this would be back in Daniel chapter 1 where you have the Hebrew children that have been taken captivity down into Babylon and they are up against Nebuchadnezzar and all the things that they have. And at a point, Daniel says to to Nebuchadnezzar, hey look let us, let us eat what we eat let us do what we do and not partake of the world and at the end of a period of time you put us up against the best you got and let's see who's better and at the end of that time period they did that and the Bible says that Daniel and his, and his buddies were 10 times better than all the world had to offer. You know what that tells me? That tells me that when you get quickened and you allow the Word of God to empower you at some point in your life, like many of you are right now, you'll be 10 times faster than the world. Uh, you'll be light speed. You'll be warp speed When the world. You'll figure things out quicker. You'll see things quicker. You'll, you'll react quicker. You'll see the biblical principles in it quicker. You will actually be smarter than and sharper than the person out there. That's what the Word of God does for you. It illuminates your intelligence through spiritual, um, uh, you know, infestation of the Word of God in your life. It, it puts Christ, God's mind. Let this mind be in you. It's all part of the process, and you actually become ten times better than anything the world has to offer. And you know, you see that because the world's in complete upside down mess right now. I mean, uh, it, it is, and it isn't going to get any better. I mean, people are waiting for everything to pass and get back. It ain't. It's it's going to be, as you're seeing now, it's one landfall catastrophe after another. And uh, it isn't going to get any better. So my advice to you is that now that you know the world isn't going any better, you best better become smarter and figure it out. And anybody who has a little bit of Bible knowledge and understands the things of God and the world and the history and where this thing is going... You're ten times smarter than anybody on Fox News, CNN, or ABC or CBS. You know what you're up against. You know what you're up against, and uh, it's a thing where you know we look at the world, we look at the way America is, and you know a guy with no understanding, you know he he looks at the he looks at the he looks at the short term. You know, he looks around him and he sees the liberal Democrats and he wants to blame them. Somebody else sees the don't like the Republicans, so they blame them. Somebody else doesn't like Nancy Pelosi, who does, and and blames her. Somebody else doesn't like Trump and blames him. Uh, Somebody else blames the black people. The black people blame the police people. Uh, Everybody's blaming everybody else. And uh, you know, and you look at this thing and the riots and this and everything going on and you know, you see the country unraveling and it's splitting and then you got the coronavirus and everybody's afraid of that, and you got people who will never go to church again, you know, they're never gonna go out of their house. They'll find them three or four years from now dead in the basement someplace, you know, and the smell gets so bad the neighbors call the cops. And yet if you're sharp, you don't you don't look at all of that. I mean it's there. But I can, I can tell you, I can tell you, I can, I can put it in one sentence and end it all if you've got any kind of spiritual ability at all. You know what it is? One sentence, maybe a paragraph. Let's do a paragraph. <laughs> Never in the history of the world has any country ever survived more than 200 years after they have rejected the Word of God. This country rejected the Word of God, 1888. So we are what, 140 years into it, 60 years left, and look where we're at. It isn't the Republicans, it isn't the Democrats, it isn't the Black Lives Matter, it isn't the crowd down there protesting, it isn't the police. I mean, those are all problems. But you know why they're all problems? Because this country is the book of Judges. There's no king in Israel and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. That's the problem. Where does that start from? 1888, dump the book. Not one nation in the history of the world survived 200 years. I mean, when I say survived, I don't mean they all just disappeared like the Incas and fell off the planet. They never survived. They went into anarchy. It went into total corruption. Nobody survived 200 years after having the Bible and rejecting it. Nobody. 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 Czechoslovakia. Anybody know where it's at today? There was a time under John Huss in the 1600s that the whole nation of Czechoslovakia followed him and most of them were born again. You can't even find it anymore today. It's gone. They rejected it. Germany, Europe. Martin Luther brought a great reformation and, 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 and turned the whole country of Germany toward God. Where are they today? Where's Europe at today? Europe is amoral. You know why? Because they never survived. They rejected the book and 200 years They never got past it, and they're in total apostasy. And America is right gone the same path. See, that's not seeing it being sharp. I mean, you can point fingers all day long. We can blame everybody. Everybody's going to blame everybody else. But when you bring it back to one thing that God told us that our country was built on. And in 1888, they dumped it. And here we are, 140 some years into it now with 50 or 60 to go. I can't even imagine if Jesus doesn't come what this country's going to be in 50 years. See, most of you are young people, but us older guys and gals, um, we were around in the 50s and the 60s. We saw what a country was that still had some kind of fiber in it based on the, the Bible and preaching in churches. We saw... Uh, You know, you didn't see rainbows and gay people. They were all in closets. You you didn't see all of the stuff that goes on in the world today. Uh, It it was all, it was all, it it wasn't like it is today. I mean, we had the Democrats and the Republicans, but even the Democrats were pretty decent presidents because everybody had a following of of a morality line. It's all gone. You didn't have the, you know, when the liberals started, we really want to see it. The liberals started during the Vietnam War. And you know where that movement started, it starts where it all starts. It started on the college campuses. Yeah, I was in the Army back then in that time. I didn't know what was going on. I remember Kent, 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 Kent State University when they were burning down, the, burning down because of the war in Vietnam, because they didn't like it and they thought it was an immoral war, and it was somebody else's war, and it wasn't our war. And uh, you know and so that, where did that start? It started out at Berkeley, started in the colleges. They started at places like Kent State University where they surrounded the National Guard on a little hill and the National Guard got flustered and and fired into them and killed eight people and then it just, that was another great eruption. You see, you think the one down in the plaza is bad. You should have saw that one. I mean, they were saying National Guard is murderers, American military is murderers or baby killers or all that. I was in the Army. We all held up our signs. Great game. National Guard 8, Kent State Nothing. (laughs) That's how you look at it. How dare you come and try to throw rocks and dog crap and bags of urine uh, on soldiers that are trying to defend from you burning it down. You know what? Don't make me president. <laughs> Trump says, I'm a president. That, um, what do you say? I am a law and order president. I appreciate that. If I was president, I'd be a lock and load president. <laughs> <laughs> no fears. I won't make it. (laughs) Uh, But you see, you know, so uh, it makes you sharp. And then the next thing it says, sharper than any two-edged sword, uh, piercing. It, uh, It pierces you. The Word of God gets down inside of you. You know, that's why people won't change. You carry a Bible to church, but the Bible never pierces you. It never gets down inside of you. You know, you got your body armor on from the world. So the, the principles, the messages, the words that just bounce off of you, like a, you know, nine millimeter off of, of somebody's vest. It's a thing where you got to, it, it'll pierce you. And you know what? When the word of God pierces you, you know what it does next? This is see how the progression this thing is? It starts out you getting saved, getting quickened, and then you get empowered. And then you become sharper. And then the Word of God pierces inside of you, and you know what it does when it pierces inside you? It divides you. There goes the world. And the reason why so many of God's people claim to be saved and are still in the world because it's so simple. This is not complicated, this is not rocket science. You don't have to be a math professor to figure it out. The bottom line is the Word of God has never pierced them. And until it does, nothing changes. Because when it does, then it divides you. And it divides you from the things that, uh, that, uh, uh, that you need to be divided from. And that's the problem with God's people today. They don't want to be divided from those things. They want one foot in the world and one foot with God, and it won't work that way. Then the next thing he says here is the fact that, uh, next verse here, is the fact that once you get quickened, once you get empowered, once you become sharper, once you get pierced, once you get divided, and I might add to that, that that's not only dividing you from the world, but it's also rightly dividing the word of truth. It gives you both that aspect too. And then what happens is the word of God is alive. It's a living book, like I said last Sunday. So now it, it discerns you. And in the verse 13, it discerns the thoughts and the intents of your heart. You see, that's where Israel's problem was and that's where your problem and my problem will be. The reason why you don't like preaching and why you don't like to come to church or if you do come to church you come for a little while and because it doesn't pierce you, you don't want to come back or you want to stay away. is because once that book starts knocking on your door, the Holy Spirit of God starts discerning your thoughts and intents and you don't like that. You see, if you're a real Christian who loves God, you love that. Even if your thoughts and intents are wrong, you love that. Because when you get saved and you get down into God, you give Him that option. We all have wrong thoughts and we all have our wrong intents. The difference between some of God's people and other God's people is some of God's people don't want the Holy Spirit of God knocking on those thoughts and intent doors. The other ones welcome it because they know it's wrong. And uh, the Word of God is—it's a—it's—it a, a discerns. It discerns. And then, and then he says in verse 13, neither is there any creature that is not manifested in his sight. The last thing that it does, the seventh thing, that the word of God, based on all the things it will do for you, at the end result, it manifests who you really are. Not only to him, but to anybody who has ability to, to, uh, to see it. You know, the word of God is a great book because I said it many, 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 many times. It's the only book in the world when you start to read it, it starts to read you. And that's what people don't like. And the Bible, at the end of the day, the Bible will manifest who you really are. It really will. Because it'll dictate through the through its own principles and how you respond to it will be how who you really are. It's just that simple. And you'll find God's people who who want to pretend they're spiritual. They want to fake spirituality. Um, They'll do all the things that they do, but bottom line is when you look at their life and you look at everything around them, the Word of God continually just manifests them in the shallow column. And uh, it's, uh, it's what it is because it discerns the thoughts and intents of your heart. And it's a thing where, you know, that's why... You know, the Bible says that you don't have, you shouldn't judge people, and you shouldn't. And, and the reason why you shouldn't is not so much because it's wrong to judge. It is because we all have our issues. But uh, the bottom line is you judge yourself. The, man, the Word of God will show everybody, including yourself. The problem is that you don't want to see it, but everybody else does see it. And that's what you don't like. And, uh, you know, I've been in churches all my life where you had people who, who uh, you know, got mad about something or didn't like this, didn't like that. And, uh, you know, their whole life is a joke. Their whole life is a mess. Uh, they've lost their families. They've lost everything. Uh, you know, their own kids look at them and laugh and scoff. And their, their kids are out of control. And they run around and try to do everything in the world to fix it, and they can't. And they, they just... They, and yet at the same time, they, they they try to blow themselves up like the Goodyear blimp and float around town, letting everybody see Goodyear sign on it. And the truth of the matter is, you know, uh, everybody, the word of God manifests you. It manifests you. So it says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest uh, in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes with him we have to do. Now, you want to mark that word naked there because when you find the word naked in relationship to Christ, I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to go back to the judgment seat. If things in your life are naked and open before God now, they will be at the judgment seat of Christ. It's just that simple. Getting an attitude and getting mad at God, getting mad at the church, getting mad at the preacher is never a good, never a good plan. Uh, simply because of the fact that usually when you dig down through the layers of that, you'll find that the real source of your anger is your own stupidity. And, uh, you know, it's just the way it works. And then he says in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now, the profession there is defined for you in chapter 3, verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Your profession as a Christian is to do the work of God. You all, in a secular sense, have a profession. Some of you work at a warehouse, some of you work at plumbers, some of you work at electricians, some of you are nurses, some of you, you know, you you, you have a job. And that's your profession. For you and for me as a child of God, my profession, your profession, is to finish the work that God's called us to do. And uh, the problem is that we get the physical profession in the way of our spiritual profession. And that happens a lot. We forget that the job that God has given us is to pay the bills, support the work, take care of our families, and we're like tent-making missionaries. It's designed so we can do the work of God. God gave you a job to pay all you need so you can do his job, the work. But we get caught up in the different professions. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin and uh <clears throat> that's a great verse that that's a verse that uh, definitely can apply to to both in our cases uh, you know uh it it shows you that God understands what we go through I mean, can you imagine? Because the Bible doesn't cover these things. It doesn't say anything about them. But the verse says he's tempted on all points as we as like we are. Well, just stop and think what we are tempted with all day long. It's hard to believe that Christ was tempted with those same things. But the verse says he was. You see, and because he had the victory in God, once he's in you, you can have the victory in Christ because he's already been there. And, uh, you know, he's touched. He's not judgmental. He's not angry. He's not vindictive. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You know why? Because he's been there. He knows. But he also knows the only way out of those infirmities is what the Word of God will do for you in seven things. And if a man or a woman is not willing to follow those seven things, and, and learn the lessons of the nation of Israel and the rest that they never got, and to see that their problem was the hardness of their heart and their unbelief that the promise that God gave them, you're not going anywhere. You'll be down in the city in the mission, you'll be homeless here, homeless there, or worse, but you ain't going anywhere. And this world uh, will do nothing but destroy you, Christ will do nothing but lift you up and edify you. But at the end of the day, it's your choice. I can't make the choice for you. Your mom and your dad can't. Nobody can. You have to weigh the odds, weigh the options, and you have to simply say, I'm done with the world. And it's got to be more than just words. You have got to come to the place where you make that split. And whatever it takes, whoever's got to go, whoever you got to say bye-bye to, senor, um, uh, see you later, senorita, whatever the case may be, Sayonara, whatever it is, whatever language you're in, hit the road, toad, whatever it's got to be, you, uh, you got to make that cut. And then he says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was on all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help uh, in time of need. Now, for the Jew, that's great advice. They're in the tribulation. They're going through the tough times. They now realize that Christ is better than Moses. He's better than the angels. His promises are better than the other promises. And they realize who he is. They realize what Peter said, this man named Jesus, whom you have crucified, God of me, both Lord and Christ. And, of course, they turn back to him. It's great advice for us. Because once you realize that He not only went tempted on all points and without sin, yet He paid for all of your sins, the only way to get past it is to come to the throne of grace that you, um, that you get help in your time of need. Israel's time of need will be the tribulation. Our time of need will be whatever we're going through because we've done the same thing the nation of Israel has done and that is rejected everything that God has given us. And for whatever reason, We will not allow the Word of God to do those seven things in our lives, and we want to hang on to the world, and it'll never work. Well, we'll hold up there.